I'm honored to be here and minister with Dave. He's been a great champion of the Word of God through radio, through every means of communication, of getting the message out. And I love to speak with him because I don't have to check him out to make sure he hasn't compromised. He is committed to the doctrine that is faith once delivered to the saints. And he has communicated it with honor and integrity and academic excellence for many, many years. That's why many of you are here. And I know what he believes about the coming of Jesus. That's one of the things that winds him up and makes him different than the rest. He actually believes that Jesus could come in his lifetime. And I sure hope he's right. <laughs> because I'm expecting the Lord to come. How many of you couples have the same prayer requests that my wife and I have had prayed for years? that we both go to be with the Lord at the same time. Let me see your hands. Amen. What's the matter with the rest of you? Are you looking around for a replacement? <laughs> My wife and I have been married. <laughs> we've been married 62 years. She was, she was very young at the time I married her. Uh, she was only six or seven. But... Uh, <laughs> But we've had a wonderful life. We have four children dedicated to serve Jesus, for which we're grateful. In fact, our son-in-law, Murph, married our oldest daughter, Linda, and they've worked with us in our ministry. Without them, we couldn't do the things that we're trying to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we're just so grateful. We have nine grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren. And they're all under six years of age. People say to me, why did you move back to San Diego after being out in paradise in the, in the valley where Rancho Mirage, where we thought we were going to retire? And uh, I'll give you 10 reasons. And they're all under six years of age. And we've been so grateful God led us there, and we're having the time of our life. And busier than ever, trying to communicate the message of the gospel. And that's what we're trying to do is use prophecy. People say to me, how come you got started in preaching prophecy? Well, when I was 10 years old, my, almost dead, my father died of a massive heart attack at 34. My 28-year-old mother had just given birth to my brother, who was seven weeks old, and my sister was five. So there she is with three of us, widowhood. They'd been saved eight years because a godly minister knocked on the door and invited them to come to his church, and they were saved the same night. Dad from the, the, we have something else on? This is a moving service, I can see that. <laughs> My dad was a, had a beautiful tenor voice, which obviously I did not inherit, and uh, he was singing in the choir in this little Baptist church in Farmington, Michigan, and my mother was sitting out in the audience. She's like me, she was tone deaf, and uh, I have a baritone voice. It's the baritone you've ever heard. And, uh, and they didn't know. Dad came out of the choir and kneeled at the altar. And then he sensed that a woman had come and she didn't know he was there. And they accepted Jesus the same night, unbeknownst to the other, that they had accepted Christ. And so when the minister came to the graveside, I'll never forget, he stood at the side of the casket and he said, uh, 
my heart was broken. You can imagine a 10-year-old. I idolized my father. He was just a wonderful, gregarious person. And the minister put his hand on the great casket, and he said, this is not the last of Frank LaHaye. The day is coming when Jesus will shout from heaven and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we'll meet together in the sky with our friends and loved ones in the, in the clouds and then meet the Lord in the air. Well, he, he gave that. And as he pointed toward heaven, it was an overcast sky. If you've ever been in Michigan, it's overcast 365 days a year. And all of a sudden the clouds just kind of opened up and a beam of light came into my heart. And all of a sudden I realized the world hadn't come to an end. This was not the finish of my father, that I would see him again. And that blessed hope of anticipating the coming of Jesus was born in my 10-year-old heart. I did, I'd only been saved two years by that time, but I had no idea the Lord would call me into the ministry or give me an opportunity to communicate the message of Jesus' second coming. And that's what I'm all about. Ever since I've been outside of the local church, we pastored in San Diego for 25 years and other places, but the, the ministry that God gave us in the last few, well, I'd say 28 or nine years, has been all over the country holding meetings just like this. Prophecy conferences, because people should be interested in Bible prophecy. And that's why I write books. I don't write books to entertain myself. I write books to communicate the same message. And by the way, I have several books that I got on the book table, and they asked me if I'd mentioned one, or several of them. One of them is, Whatever Happened to Morality? By David Hart. Oh. <laughs> that isn't my book at all. But I'll tell you, if Dave wrote it, it's a good book. And then he's got one on Hosea, a forgotten prophet. We need to know what the prophets were saying. You know who they were? Holy men of God who spake as the Holy Spirit led them. And we are indebted to them for the Bible. And you know something else? They were all Jews. That's another reason I like to speak with this man. He is for Jesus first, but for Israel second. And he believes that we in the church ought to defend Israel and propagate the message that God is using them. And folks, we're facing a difficult time. We ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem every day. Because there are people in Washington, I won't name their names, you can read the newspaper or listen to Fox News and they'll tell you. And, <laughs> and you'll find that those people do not understand the stick of dynamite they have in their hands in persecuting Israel. Because God is for them. And God raised Israel up. Well, there are other books on the book. Oh, my favorite book this last two months. I just came out with this book on Jesus. I love to write about Jesus. This will probably be the last one <clears throat> on him especially, but it's only two months old. And I got the idea when an evangelist friend of ours on the pre-trib, we have a pre-trib research group that we meet in Dallas. In fact, it's just a few weeks away. And Dave is a regular member and it's always great to have him there. I know that if anybody gets up and gives some weird idea, he'll straighten them out in the commentary. And uh, the the, uh, one of the evangelists, a black evangelist who loves the Lord and loves to preach the word, he sent me a little cassette of one of his messages and it had 12 pictures of Newsweek, Time, and U.S. News and World Report, secular magazines, and they all had pictures of the cover 
of their magazine on it, 12 of them. And I got to thinking, I put it on the, the credenza of my office, and every day I'd walk in and I'd see that picture, that collage of 12 pictures of Jesus. I thought, isn't it weird? They're still fascinated by Jesus. So I did some research, and lo and behold, there's 25 other pictures of Jesus on secular magazines. And I know they put them on there because Jesus sells. But when you think about it, a man, 30 years of age, a carpenter, I mean, not a great philosopher, just a carpenter. He hung up his tools in the little carpenter shop in Nazareth. Did anything good come out of Nazareth? Yes, Jesus. And he went on preaching to her for three and a half years, and he got crucified for his troubles. He healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and he did all manner of miracles, and he gave the most sublime teachings in the history of the world. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about him. Hey, folks, is that a miracle? Larry King thinks so. But we were, Jerry Jenkins and I, because of our Left Behind series, we were interviewed by Larry, and, and he, uh, uh, I asked him during the break, not, not during the time the TV was on, but uh, during one of the breaks, I said, Larry, you're so respectful to some of the Christians you have on here. I really admire that. What do you really think about Jesus Christ? I mean, let's get right down to the issue. And he said, well, you know, I'm not a believer. I'm a Jew. He said, I'm not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I'm always looking. And uh, he's still looking, unfortunately. Pray for him. I, I'd like to see him come to Jesus. But he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the most influential person who ever lived. Now, why would an agnostic Jew or anybody make a statement like that? Because it's true. You know that there's more space in the Encyclopedia Britannica given to Jesus than anyone who ever lived? Or H.C. Wells wrote a voluminous volume of, of the history of America, of the world, the major people. And when he got all, he was a skeptic. And this is 1908. And when he got all through, he discovered that he had given more space to Jesus than anyone else. Why Jesus? because he has influenced this world more than anyone who ever lived. In fact, if we were standing on Mount Megiddo and we looked at all 13 billion people who have ever lived, half the world's population is on the world right now, so double it and you got 13 billion. And one person stood up as the most influential person who had ever lived. Wouldn't you wonder if maybe there was something special about him? Well, there was. He was the son of God. He was an atheist. I shared Jesus with an atheist on the plane one day. And he said, well, you know, the thing I can't understand is how one man could die for everybody. In fact, he followed it up by saying, could one person's blood cleanse the sins of the whole world? And I said, no, not one man. He was kind of startled, a Baptist minister agreed with it. And then I said, but that wasn't a man. That was God's only begotten son who left the glories of heaven and came down here and made himself lower than the angels so that he could taste death 
for every man and woman. And today, we can be saved by calling upon the Lord Jesus Christ for his blood atonement for our sins. Isn't that a great story? And the incredible thing is it's true. Let me show you the contrast. With all due respects to the Jews, I love them and I pray for them and I'm anxious to see them come to Jesus. But did you notice something un-Jewish when you came in here to church tonight? Did you smell any blood? Did you hear any bleeding of the lambs? Did you see any sacrifices or evidence of sacrifices? No. Why? Because we don't do that once, because there was a sacrifice once for all. The value of the sacrifice was in the personhood of Jesus. And when he died on that cross and he cried out, it is finished, the sacrificial system is atoned for. It was completed. And now we can be saved by grace through faith. And sometimes I've had people say, well, hey, that's just too easy. Well, no, it wasn't easy for Jesus when you think of all that he did to become the servant. It was, it's easy to us. And that's what faith is. We can call on the name of the Lord and be wonderfully saved. And then we go a step further and say, and he's coming back. And that's what these conferences are all about. Well, I'm getting ahead of my story. Let me quickly tell you about a book I've got. And I hope you'll look at the book table and you'll take some of these. And Christmas is coming. These make excellent gifts. But I have a book I love. You know, I've written 50 nonfiction books and uh, 25 fiction books. And I hate to say this, but the fiction books have outsold the nonfiction books. But this is a book that has 50 prophecies charted out. I'm kind of weird. I, I think in charts. If I can't visualize it, I, I kind of make a chart out of it. This one has something that's impossible. When I went to the publishers 10 years ago and told them what I had in mind, and I wanted a fold-out chart, they said it can't be done. And so I thought you'd like to see this chart book that can't be done. And uh, of course, they had to send to Taiwan, China to, in order to have it done. But anyway, that's only one. There are 49 other charts that are they're all small on one page. And it's a brief description. You can understand prophecy through reading this book. So I hope you'll give it to somebody who has an interest in prophecy. And then one more thing. We, in the Pre-Trib Research Center, something I started about 18 years ago, we have a group of men like Dr. Hawking and others who are interested in prophecy, writers, Dave Hunt and, and uh, Chuck Missler and a whole, whole bunch of wonderful guys. Tommy Ice is the executive director. And what we do is we meet together and spend two and a half days hearing presentations from key scholars, and then we have 45 minutes. You know, Dave, that's a frightening thing when you stand before those great guys and you put your target on the wall, you talk to them for an hour, and now they get to talk back to you. It's a frightening experience. Anyway, we have these meetings, and the Lord has blessed us. The last time we had a meeting with Joel Rosenberg on Monday night, we had 500 people. We started the first year with 31. And so the Lord's blessing. And these are all people of influence. Go out and write books and start ministries. And with that in mind, uh, I just mentioned that our newsletter, the Pre-Trib Perspectives, that's the scholarly title that Tommy Ice, the director, gave it. 
and I'm stuck with it. But anyway, he and I both write uh, articles for it every month, and it's free. You can sign up for it at the book table. It's free for three months. And then you'll get a nice letter from me saying, oh, by the way, there is no free lunch. And uh, <laughs> then you can decide if you want to pay, I think it's $25 for a year to get one of these every month. And, and I hope you'll find it very helpful. Okay, now, turn with me in your Bible to Matthew 24. <clears throat> My assigned subject was uh, the signs of Jesus coming. And I think I have some, yeah. When will Jesus come? Everybody wants to know, when will Jesus come? And as I was preparing for this, I was intrigued by something. I'll share that with you in just a moment. But in Matthew 24, you have what I consider the most important prophecy in the New Testament that everyone should know. By the way, I want to show you some, just some reasoning to think about this. I may repeat this later on because I forget a lot of things that I've already said. So I repeat them just in case you miss them. Anyway, something like that. My point is, God made 28% of his Bible prophetic at the time it was written. Prophetic significance. Over 1,000 prophecies or passages in the Bible were prophetic at the time they were written. So doesn't it seem like God intended for us to study prophecy? That's why it's good that you're here and that you're dedicating this weekend to studying Bible prophecy because God wants you to know something about the future. And I found something in the paper yesterday morning. I don't usually give newspaper uh, prophetic discussions, but it isn't very often that the San Diego Union uh, Tribune, a very weak-kneed paper. Anyway, it's not flaming liberal. Socialists wouldn't like it. It doesn't go far enough for them, but uh, the moderates might like it. But anyway, they're talking about apocalypse when. That's not a new subject. Look at Matthew 24. If you have your Bible, turn with me, and if you don't have it, you should bring it tomorrow. Uh, Matthew 24. <clears throat> An interesting thing happened. Then Jesus went out of the temple. Actually, uh, let's back up and read the first, the last three verses of 23. This is Jesus after he'd been rejected by the Jews. So moving for him to, in, in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, to her how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Remember that. It's a refrain that you will find in the prophetic word many times. You were not willing. In verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. Why was Israel left desolate? because of their unwillingness to receive him as Messiah. You see, he had to come and suffer for the sins of mankind first, but they wanted a king. They were looking for the Messiah. They're still looking for him. They want someone to relieve them of the pressure and the oppression of Rome or America or some other socialist nation. Verse 30, for I say to you, 
you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel would not see him until they're willing to say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And, you know, the, the Jews are just that far from accepting Jesus. They believe about many things about the Messiah that we believe, but they just don't believe that Jesus has fulfilled them all. And that's one of the things I do in this book on Jesus. I list a number of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled and the prophecies that he gave. Now, in verse 24, <clears throat> after saying this, in Jerusalem, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. I hope you mark in your Bible that that is a prophecy. Jesus predicted that the day would come when the temple, the most magnificent building in all of Jerusalem, Herod's temple was really well done. It wasn't as great as Solomon's temple years before that had been destroyed, but it was a magnificent structure. And I, I kind of get a chuckle out of this, Dave, when I think of the, the uh, disciples trying to impress Jesus with the temple of Herod. And he was just the creator of the whole universe. Um, they didn't have their perspective quite right. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, doesn't that sound like a prophecy to you? That this beautiful building that seemed impregnable was going to be destroyed, but specifically so that not one stone would be left upon another that would not be thrown down. May I just suggest something? I like to call this a mini prophecy before the major prophecy of this chapter, because Jesus is going to give us a whole outline of what's going to come in the future, but he, he gives us an advantage that we can trust him because he already has fulfilled this. In 70 AD, now this was given probably in 30, 32, somewhere in there. In 70 AD, historically, the Romans seized the city, sacked it, destroyed it, and burned it to the ground. And every stone, see in those days, soldiers were paid by what they could steal. Now, if you were a soldier and your payment was whatever you could steal out of the destruction of the city, what would you want? You'd want gold. And somehow, even though Titus, who was the commanding general at that time, gave the order not to burn the city, they got carried away and they burned the city anyway. And the gold at the top and the gold in the temple and all that melted and came down among the crevices of the rocks. And in order for them to scrape the gold to take home to their wife and kids or whatever they're going to do, they had to take the building apart stone by stone. And when you see the wailing wall, you look down at the bottom and you notice how big the stones are down there. Those are some of the stones that were removed. And it's incredible that they could do that. But when they're you know, driven by a desire for gold, they, they could do it. And they removed that building stone by stone. So the fulfillment of this prophecy gives credence to the one who's about to give one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible. Now, let me see, do we have a graphic here? Oh yeah. Now, what, what you have here is 
our picture of the prophecies of the Bible that this one outlines and fulfills many others. You'll find that the destruction of the temple was accomplished according to prophecy or a fulfillment of prophecy. And then we, we uh, well, let's read on in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, just across the book, Brook Kedron, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now notice they put two things together. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus did not rebuke the disciples for asking that question. Many people have asked us, what are the signs of the times? Well, you can get carried away and become paranoid about certain things, but let's face it, folks, there are certain signs, and we'll talk about those in the hours to come, when you'll find that God is revealing himself, and some of these signs are being fulfilled in our very lifetime. And the consciousness here is that these things are going to be destroyed, but be revealed, and they will reveal the closeness to the coming of the Lord and the end of the age. They are very close in hand. And you'll see from this chart, at the end of the church age, the rapture will occur, and then the tribulation will come, and then the millennial kingdom comes after that, and then after that, of course, is heaven. Now, Jesus said in verse four, Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no one deceive you. Now, isn't that interesting? They said, what'll be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So they merged those two together. And the first thing he said was, don't be deceived. Why? Because in the last days, and he makes that clear, there will be a wave of deception. And may I suggest, this is just one of them. This is talking about 2012. <clears throat> Have you heard about that? There's going to be a great movie, an epic movie, and, and some Hollywood guy is going to talk about the Mayan Indian idea or the calendar is going to end at that time and they have some I wish we had time to go into it but we don't I don't want to get bore you with it but the truth is it comes from Satan it's a satanic idea one thing I know it will not come when the world says it's going to come because they're looking to the wrong inspiration and when you think about it I got a letter from a, with a book on 2012 from, I forget the man's name. Uh, I answered his letter and then gave him the gospel so that if he wanted to talk more, I'd be glad and I never heard from him. But anyway, uh, he wanted to know if we fundamentalists had any in indication that, that the Lord was going to come and the end of the age would come in 2012. Absolutely not. No man knows the day nor the hour. We could know the season and we're seeing sign upon sign, and we'll be talking about some of these signs that come along. But you ask yourself, why is it that the Mayan Indians got the idea? They were the most barbaric people in all of the North and South America. They, they were cruel to each other, and they sacrificed. They, they majored in, in life sacrifices, human sacrifices. And the Hindus, well, just about every religion, every cult in the world, is an idea that something great is going to happen in the year 2012. Well, whatever you do, don't do it because of that. Because 
when you think about all these different sources, many of them had no chance in ancient history for collision, are talking about the same period of time. What does that suggest to you? Particularly when over here the Bible is not among them. It suggests to me very loud and clear that they are listening to a spirit, a voice that is satanic. It's sorcery. It's Ouija boards and mumbo jumbo and you know all the man has this insatiable desire to know what the future holds. Well, may I suggest to you that the future is revealed better in the prophecies of the Bible than anywhere else in all of history. And you'll find that Jesus is giving this, he said, don't be deceived during that time. In verse four, Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Isn't that interesting? Remember, they, their question, what will be the sign of your coming? And twice now he's already said, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. So be very careful that you don't get deceived by some cult or ism or spasm of somebody. In verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. I'm hoping that after you've attended this conference and because you've come to this conference and shows your interest in prophecy, that none of you will ever be deceived. And anytime you hear a prophecy that suggests that Jesus is not coming, you can write it off as heresy. And verse six, he said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Oh, now I've read in the paper that, that there are, are signs of wars and rumors of wars. They don't finish what he said. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, when you talk about wars and rumors of wars, I studied history in college, and I love the history. I've read a ton of books about history because I just like people and, you know, what's happened in the world. Do you know how many wars there have been? Somebody counted them. I can't think of a less likely way to spend your life, but somebody did it, and I just quote them. But there have been over 15,000 wars in human history. So if you're going to make wars and rumors of wars a sign, which one would you do? The ones 3,000 years ago or 2,000 or whatever? You see how difficult that is. But now notice very carefully, he's saying, don't be deceived by wars and rumors of wars. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. That means several places at the same time. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, I want you to analyze that verse because the for means, therefore, you examine what it's there for. And it's to say there's a difference the sign is coming. Wars and rumors are, it always struck me as rather strange that the Lord's asked, what would be the sign of your coming? And he talks about deception. And then all of a sudden he talks about wars, many wars. But instead he says, or there's going to be a special war that comes along. And I submit to you now, this is just my idea, not mine. I didn't develop it far more brilliant heads than mine got involved in it. But there are four parts to this one sign. And I believe that 
in the history of the war world, there has been one war that qualifies for this. Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's using a Hebrew idiom of twice of which in the Old Testament, the prophet is looking at the horizon of the Jewish interest and people got into a conflict. Two nations got into a fight and then they were joined by the other nations in the area until the whole region was involved. And that's exactly what he said. There will be a war come that is started by two nations. And if you know your history, you know that happened one time. In 1914, 1918, we have what the world calls what? World War One. Just exactly. But now, if that's all it was, that wouldn't qualify. And by the way, if I, if you read one of my books, it's out of print. If you can find it, uh, I'm going to update it one of these days. But <clears throat> I go into the history of it and show that 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 war was started by two nations. The Archduke of Austria got shot by a Serbian man, and that caused the Middle Eastern, I mean, a European war joined by the other countries of the world until almost every country in the world had sent volunteers or official armies, and we have what we call World War I. Now, if that was the only part of the sign that was fulfilled, it wouldn't be adequate. But notice what else it says. In addition to that war started, it would be followed by famines. The greatest famines in the history of the world per capita were started in World War I. The influenza, influenza epidemic swept millions of people even in our own country, jumped the Atlantic Ocean and came here with people coming back and carrying the infection and it swept the Americas, Europe. Millions of people died because of famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places at the same time. I've seen a chart put out by the Geological Society, the U.S. Geological Society, put it out until they realized we were using it and then they quit. But they had showed how the, the increase of earthquakes increased every 10 year, every decade until the last time it outproduced the decade before it in five years. Which means that earthquakes, and I don't have to talk to this intelligent audience, anybody who lives in California, you know our dread is that we might have another earthquake. And may I point out to you that this is exactly what's happening, but in World War I, you'll have the multiple earthquakes. You had an earthquake in Europe, in Africa, in North and South America, and two in America, all at the same time. And that's what he's talking about, an earthquake in many places at the same time. I submit to you that it is highly likely that World War I and the other signs that are attached to it were fulfilled in 1914 to 1918. Now let's read on. And all these are the beginning of travail. Now I'm sure you've heard your pastor, if he preaches on prophecy at all, he's talked to you about this. But this is like a woman's birth pains. And all you mothers know, you can identify with I've gone through this with a woman I love four times and it's been pain, pain, pain. <laughs> she, in fact, when we were 
our first one came along. I remember she got a hold of my tie. Some that was back when they let you into the room, and she's jerking on my tie. And she said, "Why did you do this to me?" Because <laughs> she was in such pain. But then, as soon as she has the baby lying on her tummy, then oh, she's in a great mood. She's just wonderful. What you ladies are smiling. You know what it's all alike. It's pain, and then it's wonderful pleasure. And your greatest joy is your children, if they walk in truth. And he says, all these are the beginning of travail. To make a long story short, the pattern that Bev went through four times and that all of you ladies have gone through under normal circumstances is you get a birth pain and you may wait several days for another one and then another one and then another one. And you know, we were in, in South Carolina where our first little church was in Pumpkin Town and uh, we didn't have very me good medical services there. And then we went to Minnesota, and then we went to California. And see, in these three different places, our four children were born. And the doctors, all specialists at delivering babies, and they all gave us the same advice. They said, Tim, your job is to time these birth pains. And when they get 10 minutes apart for 15 minutes, no, I'm sorry, three minutes apart, for, for 15 minutes, then we want you to drive to the hospital. And I went through the routine, I chimed them, and, and then they quit. And we wait a few days, and then they time, you know, the same thing. And finally, the babies were about to be born, and we got her to the hospital, and it all happened just the way it's supposed to. You see, what he's talking about is, this World War I would be the first birth pain, if it's accompanied by these other three signs. And then there would be other birth pains and other birth pains, and, and they would gather momentum until the birth of the child came. And then this vernacular, he's talking about the coming of the Lord, the end of the age. And we're seeing this happen more and more, these birth pains. For example, when did Russia become a something nation? 1917, isn't that interesting? History will tell you, Peter the Great, he wasn't so great, he just occupied the history books, but the truth is, Russia was a nothing nation for centuries, millenniums. It was a conglomerate group of, of uh, barbaric people. What do you think they have the, the Chinese wall, the wall of China, to keep the, the Russians out? And uh, make a long story short, you'll find that, that Russia became as a result of the communist revolution in 1917, a something nation, and it's been a threat to world peace ever since. And that's only one more of the birth pains that come along. What about Israel? Isn't it interesting that in the First World War, Israel was given a place in Palestine, an official place and was without, with difficulty, and you know the story, Dave will bring that up to you when he talk about uh, this phase of the, the prophecies that are being fulfilled. But Israel became a nation in 1948. And officially, thanks to Harry Truman, the clothing salesman before he went into politics, and uh, he, beca he became the defender of Israel. And may I suggest that Israel has now become a nation for over what? Well, Al Lindsay, our friend, who, you know, all we prophecy preachers don't agree on everything. We believe Jesus is coming and 
where there are certain nuances that we're disagreeing on. I never could swallow his idea that that Christ was going to come after one generation. It says in this text, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Well, obviously he wasn't talking about the generation of Israel that came became a nation in, in uh, uh, 1948 because he would have to have come in 1988. So obviously history has run out. Actually, what he was talking, well, I'll come to that. He was talking about other aspects of the sign and the full coming of Jesus as we get this. But I want to read that to you. In verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Now, one of the signs of the times, and we'll talk to you about that, is a, a kind of a, a three-pronged sign. And it's everyone here has heard politicians talk about globalism. Think of globalism like a stool with three legs. What are the three legs? Revelation makes it clear, very clear that there's going to be a world economy. And there's going to be a world government, which George Soros says is essential in order to support a world economy. The world government supporting the world economy, and you'll have a world religion. And what will it take to get all the religions of the world together? The rapture of the church. When we're out of here, who's going to be the restraining influence to keep all the world from false teaching through religion? They'll all get together. And that globalistic mania that the world is going through right now is one more birth pain or one more symbol or sign that we're approaching the end of the age. Well, in verse 16, he says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let he who's in the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath day. Now notice in verse 21, a very important, for then there shall be great tribulation. Now verse nine says there be tribulation, but in verse 21, he says there will be great tribulation. Now remember, this is Jesus talking. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever, shall be. This has never happened, folks. But it could be right at hand. And the world is getting set up to anticipate the end. The end. That's why I'm so excited about my next fiction series. It'll be out the end of April. It'll be called The End. Before Apocalypse. It's a series based on the same prophecies as Left Behind. But... Uh, It'll be different in the different places, different people, different activities, and the rapture won't be seen on the airplane, which was neat and left behind. But the reason we did that is because I read somewhere that there are 40,000 takeoffs and landings every day. Yeah, that's worldwide, and I suppose it's more now if uh, too many of the pilots haven't fallen asleep. But um, anyway, <coughs> my apologies to the pilots here. <laughs> 
And then and he says, in those days, unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved. Now get the picture. I want you to understand that red zone is one of the shortest periods in the Bible. And why do we harp on that so much? Because more space is given to that brief period of seven years than any other event in the Bible except the life of Jesus. And after all, it was about him that we wrote the four gospels. But you'll find that when the tribulation begins, you have a shaking of the earth when God will reveal himself to mankind. They should see him before by the signs of the times, by the beginning of the end. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be justified. Well, my time is gone. And I just feel like I've barely scratched the surface. So you'll have to come tomorrow morning to get the rest. But is it exciting to understand that God has a wonderful plan? And I hope you're a part of the plan. One of the things I loved about the fiction series Left Behind is I have had so many wonderful stories told me. Everywhere I go, without exception, somebody will come up to me and say, oh, I got to tell you this story. Tonight, one of the men told me the cutest story I've heard in a long time. He said, they, I think it was a late teenage son, relative in the family. And they all knew about the rapture. And he has, was a young Christian. And anyway, he came home. And it was kind of a confusion going on. And nobody was in the house. Evidently, people got up and they left the table. And uh, there was still food on the table. And it was just, you know, it was mayhem. And he had tried on his cell phone to get somebody on the phone and nobody answered. And all of a sudden a thought came to him, the Lord's come and I've been left behind. <laughs> well, folks, that's more than just a dream. That's going to happen. And I'm sad to say it's going to happen to millions of people. Why? We'll make that very clear during this conference. But all a person has to do is call upon the name of the Lord. Why? Because the path has already been made. The price has already been paid. All we have to do is call on the name of the Lord. Are you a whosoever? The Bible says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I hope you've called. If you haven't, Let's take a moment and give you a chance to. Let's bow together for prayer. And in your heart of hearts, ask yourself this question. Have I ever really called on the name of the Lord? If you have any doubt, or if you know you haven't, right there, he will hear you. Pray that prayer. Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe your son, Jesus, died for my sin and rose again. That's the minimum requirement of faith. If you believe that, then call him into your heart. Say, Lord, my faith is weak, but I do believe you love me and you want me to call upon your name and forgive my sins and save me. And when Jesus shouts from heaven, his, your heart will be 
trained to the wavelengths of heaven by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you've given a lot of money to no. Because you've done a lot of good works? No. Because you've called on the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit do the work that only he can do in each heart. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray.